Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Slash Home Daily for Wednesday, February 10th, 2021. On today's episode, we're going to discuss what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Home Editor-in-Chief, Peter Soretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Home Managing Editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Senior writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And writer, Shwai Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. Okay, so Brad is out again. Uh, we do expect him back next week, so look forward to you know all the stuff he's been eating and doing then. But let's jump into it, and let's start with what we've been doing. And I actually have been very active this week. <laughs> um, uh, I've been out and about uh, recording some videos for Ordinary Adventures, but I, I did some interesting things that I've never done before that I want to talk about here. I went to Frank and Sons Collectibles show here in Southern California. It's a little bit north of Anaheim. It's uh, right near the Puena Hills Mall, which is the mall, uh, that uh, the, the Twin Pines Mall from Back to the Future. Uh, ben, when you were living in Los Angeles, did you ever visit Frankensons? I did not. I visited the Twin Pines Mall, but never this collectibles show. Guys, yeah, so- guys, did you know in Back to the Future when he hits the tree <laughs> and he comes back to the present, it's Lone Pines Mall? No one has ever pointed this out before. I, I hope someone talks about this. Anyway, continue. Oh, thank God for TikTok for teaching us these things. <laughs> Chris, did you know that that Kevin McAllister, like he not like the the plane tickets get knocked into the trash and then what holy shit i hope someone points this out anyway did you know that disney recycles animation what (laughs) man this show is full of shocking revelations anyway (laughs) okay in the late 80s uh this guy named frank and uh his son started this collectible show that i think they ran a trucking business so they they had a warehouse and basically on the weekends they would have this collectible show where, you know, booths would get set up kind of like Comic-Con, but like, you know, more of the like mom and pop, like shops selling t-shirts and Funko Pops and those kind of things. Um, and it would be held every weekend in this warehouse that had no air conditioning. And it was, you know, it was a trucking warehouse with those yellow lights and whatever. Uh, 
And this thing grew over the years to become a big thing here in Southern California. It's called the Frankincense Collectible Show. They recently have moved to a new location. They've taken over a much bigger space. They're in a, uh, a previously a spot that was previously used as a Sam's Club. So if you know how big a Sam's Club is. And every Friday, Saturday, and Wednesday, they are open. Uh, and it's basically like a you know mom and pop uh, Comic-Con. It's like a collectible flea market. You can get anything from you know Pokemon cards to... Funko Pops to, you know, sideshow collectible statues, action figures, you know, all that whole gambit of of stuff. Um, I had never been there. I, everybody had always told me about it. And uh, I know that they had uh, reopened during the pandemic with a much very, very limited capacity. I think it's like 20 percent of what it normally is. And it's also a massive massive building so uh i i I had seen some videos and stuff and felt safe about going there and uh we recorded a video for ordinary adventures which will be out i think next week or something like that um but uh, it was (laughs) i i can't tell you guys how how much like being there like almost made me emotional because you know i didn't have comic-con this year didn't have designer con didn't have uh la comic-con like i didn't know i missed like walking down the aisles and like looking at art and looking at, you know, old action figures. Like I didn't know that that was going to be something that like, that I really cared about that much. Um, I didn't end up buying much. So it's not uh, like I ended up finding anything that like really connected to me and spent money. But, um, but if you're in Southern California, you might want to check out Frankenstein's collectible show. It, It turns out like if you're in Southern California and you're a geek, you probably have already been here. I'm like the last person (laughs) <laughs> that has gone to this gone to this place but um i recommend it and they they do run a very safe show there's people around uh making sure that everybody's wearing masks and uh you know physically distancing and um all that kind of stuff and they they also like the the family that runs this thing has over the years bought a, a lot of collectibles and strangely like some stuff from like old mcdonald's and toys r us's and stuff like that so the sam's club is kind of decked out on in like all these like collectibles and i guess frank was a nascar driver or something or maybe he sponsored nascars or something so there's like these nascars like in the back and i don't know it, it it's a it's a really strange thing that i feel like shouldn't exist but uh i i recommend checking it out uh you know uh even now or even after the pandemic uh, and now i think it's actually better because like it is so it, it's like comic-con um before they open the doors do you know what i mean <laughs> where you see like some vendors walking around but it's not like cr- crowded aisles so it, it's very very chill anyways uh the other thing i did this week is uh for another video i went to the funco store in hollywood because they recently launched this pop yourself thing, which is uh, they're doing it at uh, the Funko Hollywood store and they're doing it at the Funko headquarters in Everett, uh, Washington, right outside of Seattle. Um, And what it is, is you can go to these two locations and customize your own Funko pop. So you choose the head, which has a variety of different colors to it or different, you know, eyelashes or no eyelashes. You get to choose the you know what kind of what color what style of hair out of i want to say like 
you know, 60 different options or something like that. You, you get a, you can choose a top, you can choose a, a bottom with legs. You can choose accessories for your character to be holding. Um, there's so many choices right now because of COVID they are doing this. Um, I guess it's really popular. And uh, before the store opens, we got there, I think like two hours before the store opens. There was a line down the street. Uh, so a physically distanced line, but there was a line down the street. So this is like something that's popular. And if you don't get there within an hour of the store opening, you're not going to get one for the day. And uh, you get this virtual time to come back to the store. And they're not doing this in the store. Normal times you'd be in the store and there's like this whole uh, section of the store where like it's a Funko Pop factory where you'd actually assemble the pieces yourself and see what they look like and put them together. But because of COVID, you know, and all the touching stuff, even though I feel like surfaces have been less of a problem uh, CDC wise, uh, they um, they're doing this. Uh, they're, they're having you fill out a form and then the, the employees inside are actually building the Funko Pop for you. So they've set up these these sections outside the store of like for you to just see all the different pieces and you have room like there's not. Uh, a ton of people around you and you were basically filling out this card with, you know, I want the B2 head. I want the, you know, H7 body. I want that, whatever. Um, I, it's not optimal. Um, and I will say this, uh, uh, a friend of ours did this and it's, it's kind of a shame that you can't like test it out. And actually when you buy it and it's given to you, it's non-returnable. So uh, a friend of ours did this and, like one of the pieces like had like a discoloration and she couldn't return it. And also like she got like a pop for her, her boyfriend, which like she got like a big beard for the pop for her boyfriend. And the beard is like so big, it covers up the top half of his body. And it's something that like, if you're putting piecing them together yourself, you would notice, but she was like, Oh no, that's the, how big his beard is. And, you know, went on and picked the rest of the stuff. And so I think she's a little disappointed with how hers turned out. I'm, I'm very happy with how uh, my Funko pop turned out. I'll put a photo of that up on uh, Instagram, maybe next week sometime when we watch that episode. Um, the, the, my one complaint I will give is that there isn't enough accessories for these things because like they have, you know, every kind of um, sports thing. So you can have a baseball bat, a tennis racket, a, a uh, golf club, all, all those kind of things. And there's things like ice cream cones and a book and, um, you know, all sorts of accessories to like kind of personalize wh- who you are as a person more. But for me, there was nothing that like n- no movie things of any kind. Like I, I thought maybe there'd be like a comic book or maybe a, a camera like a, a, a <laughs> any kind of camera actually there's no camera for someone to hold uh they they have wands like harry potter style wands but they don't have lightsabers so actually when i was at frankenstein's i bought a, a an old uh lightsaber from an action figure and gave it to my funko pop so anyways um it, it's cool uh, I would probably wait until after, you know, the, the you know, when, when things get back to normal, if you, you want to do one of these. And I think they actually have announced that sometime, maybe this summer, they're going to start doing this online where you can 
you know, fill it out online and it'll get shipped to you. And it's cool. It comes in a box that has my name on it. So it's, it comes in its own like Funko box and it says Peter Serrata on it. It says Funko Hollywood. Um, it's pretty cool. Uh, but yeah, check out the video when it, when it hits next week. And the lastly, I just wanted to plug one video that is up right now that, uh, I recorded, uh, with Kitra. We, we did a video for Valentine's day, uh, telling the story of how we met and answering questions about our relationship. It's gotten a lot of, um, very positive feedback. And I thought, uh, maybe some people listening to this might be interested in, in a more personal story from, from me and Kitra. Uh, I'll link that in the show notes, um, but I, I, I am really proud of it because I think uh, it, it is. Yeah, it's good. Anyways, Jacob, what have you been up to? It's been a real up and down week, Peter. Just lots of strange, negative, mostly negative things happening this week, starting with my uh, cat requiring surgery last week. He had a bladder stone, a massive bladder stone needed to be surgically removed. Now he has to eat special food for the rest of his life, and he's an old cat, and he's grumpy, and you often hear him in the background of this podcast. So that was very expensive and very sad and very scary. Uh, but on the plus side of things, I I did not realize until recently, but under Texas's rules, I qualify for the, for the current round of the COVID vaccine. So I hit refresh a bunch of times. It's a nightmare trying to get an appointment, but there are lots of places. Uh there's an entire network that's been set up, like there are various Slack channels and group conversations of people keeping an eye out when reservations are opening up. And one opened up, and I got one for March, and then I refreshed a few days later, and one opened up for this week. So I canceled the other appointment and got that one instead. And I had my first COVID vaccine injection yesterday. So, if it has Go any questions, back and... <laughs> wait, yeah, it did, did it hurt? Uh, it hurts a lot. Um, it, it, at first, it's just a needle, and right now my arm is incredibly sore. Uh, but I go back in, you know, a month. They're going to send me an email within the next seven days to let me book my time. Uh, the crazy thing is, as much of a nightmare as getting the appointment was, and it was a huge nightmare, um, even with this, you know, group helping people out and trying to spread the word about where the openings are, I have friends who were making bookings three hours away and driving to get just to make sure they got it. And uh, like I said, I get lucky to get one in Austin. And... The actual process once you're there was incredibly streamlined and very efficient. They really had it down to a science. It was really amazing to see how many people were working to make it happen and make it happen quickly and efficiently. I just think that that's one thing that I hope the current administration fixes. There needs to be some kind of system to make reservations easier and to help people who are older and not like me who know to refresh a page <laughs> to find something. Uh, it, it, it just it's the, Tech-wise, it's not easy. And that needs to be fixed like ASAP. So, But beyond that... You know, I, I have it, you know, in, in a month I'll have my, my second one and I'm glad I did it. I know that not all, it's always different for all states. Like I know, for example, a friend of mine who is currently working in North Carolina, but from Texas is eligible currently in Texas, but not eligible in North Carolina. So it differs from state to state. You seem to, you know, look into what your state is doing and what your health is and what health is applicable for the current, you know, rollout. And I was very fortunate. I was very lucky. And now I'm actually literally as we're on this podcast, I saw some openings forward them to a friend who got her mom on the list for this week. So it's, it's all a network in Texas of people trying to help each other and make sure people get this. Uh, and I hope that, you know, the support systems are there for other States and other groups. And I hope that other States get their act together better than Texas has with its various different pages, trying to refresh, trying to find something, getting a vaccine to save your life and save the lives of others should not be like trying to get concert tickets. It's, it's, it's a mess, but I will say the volunteers on the ground actually doing it, truly amazing uh but the overall system needs 
genuinely to be overworked and reworked if we're going to save a lot of lives. Yeah, I, I'm so jealous, Jacob. I, I can't wait to get my vaccine. I've actually had a few friends that have been like, a, you, you read those articles about vaccine chasers. I have some friends that like are those vaccine chasers where they're going from place to place, like waiting in line, hoping that at the end of the day, because like if, if they don't use these vaccines, they go in the trash. So there's, you know, they're not trying to take it from older people or, you know, more deserving people. They're, you know, waiting for the leftovers. And I, I've often thought, like, maybe maybe I should join them on this hunt. But uh, it, it, it is strange because in Texas, I could get a vaccine right now. Like, uh, I, I qualify to get a vaccine in Texas, but I don't qualify to get a vaccine in California. Yeah, I know. Um, the thing is... I'm healthier than a lot of people who also qualify. But the thing is, as somebody who did qualify, I think it's a moral obligation to get as many vaccines and as many arms as possible. So I think some people may wonder why I got it when other people couldn't in other states. And if I should feel guilty about that. And the answer is, yeah, I think about that all the time. But I also feel like I was applicable. There was an appointment. There's another vaccine in an arm. And now I don't have to worry about, you know, bringing COVID, when, when, you know, to my mom who who could die from it, you know, even though she is also currently back get the vaccine herself. So it's it's just me. It's a huge moral tightrope maze, whatever you want to call it. And it's <laughs> one that I thought about really long and hard before making the choice that, you know, I was eligible. I had a chance and I took it. Yeah. Okay. HT, what have you been up to? Also somewhat COVID related, um, but no, nothing so uh, exciting as getting a vaccine. Well, actually, it was pretty exciting, though. Uh, my friends got married and uh, uh, they hosted a virtual wedding, which I got to attend. And it was my first virtual wedding, actually, of the entire pandemic. But uh, I was wondering if any of you guys have attended one of these virtual gatherings. No. <laughs> Anyways, it was there was definitely a few... Uh, technical hiccups, but it was a, a lovely, uh, quick ceremony, and I'm excited to see them in person at some point uh, in the future, but I'm happy I at least got to see uh, that ceremony take place, even if it was over a grainy Google Hangouts meet, uh, which was probably not the best choice, uh, even over Zoom, but I think that it was it was just really, I was really happy to see that happen, and uh, that, you know, there wasn't a big hoopla that would potentially endanger people who had to travel there. So uh, that's what I did this past weekend. And this coming weekend, or rather this coming Friday, I'm preparing for Lunar New Year. Uh, so Lunar New Year falls on February 12th on Friday. And uh, this will be the first Lunar New Year that I will not be spending with family in some capacity. Last year, I I spent it in New York, but I, I got to um, attend a dinner like potluck at my cousin's apartment and that was really fun um but this year because of circumstances uh my cousins and i in new york will be doing a sort of uh drop off potluck in which we'll be dropping off the dishes that we'll each cook at like a location that we'll all pick up uh for our own dinners and then meet up over zoom to have dinner together and um other things that i'm preparing for is like for lunar new year you want to have a clean house because one of the things for lunar new year i think i've talked about this on the podcast before uh is that you can't clean your house slash apartment uh right in the first like two like two weeks i think after new year because that means you're uh sweeping out the good dust or something something like that i don't really know exactly <laughs> all of the details um but my mom has sent me very specific instructions for to do on on lunar new year um and which one of which is i have to walk in very specific cardinal directions in my first 
trip outside. So uh, to if I walk in south uh, east, I think I'll have uh, luck in in terms of money, or no, I think in terms of love, and then and then uh, which direction is for for money? One of the directions for money. Money is direct east. <laughs> so <laughs> that is something I'll be doing and trying to figure out on Friday, which will which will be exciting. It's between like a specific time period too, so I have to step out and do that. But yeah. Um, is there a certain length, HT, that you have to that you're supposed to walk, like you know, fifty feet, or like is it just you know take a couple steps, or like what's the the protocol there? I don't know, actually. <laughs> just kind of going with the flow, I guess. What if uh, you do it wrong? <laughs> are there like are there consequences if you do it wrong? The karmic consequences of the universe, I think. Well, don't screw it up, HT. Oh please. no. <laughs> Uh, but I, parents- I love how Chris thinks like a uh, he thinks like a horror movie. Like <laughs> she's gonna do it wrong, and then the you know it's gonna be I'm, a monkey paw situation. I'm just where- I'm always waiting for something to go wrong. It's like That's Final Destination if I don't do yeah. it right. Yeah, yeah. But my parents, uh, my family did send us some um, new ne- Lunar New Year food like bengjung, which is the sticky savory rice cake that we eat every year, and some of the the lisi, which is the red envelopes filled with money, as well as some cards. So it's everyone is celebrating in spirit at least, and I'll be happy to see them over zoom if, even if we can't uh spend it together and i'll be very strictly walking in those cardinal directions and hopefully not screwing it up and getting like i don't know <laughs> what is the final destination death i don't know electrocuted or something it has to be more complicated than electrocuted it needs to be like a series it's like one of those rube goldberg like series of events that like ends up with like you getting decapitated oh gosh Sorry. <laughs> I hope I wow. don't. Just got really <laughs> dark this this pleasant conversation about Lunar New Year. Well, no, but isn't that what Final Destination is at its best? Is like these like yeah, it's really gotta be like creative... a series of a uh, a series of unfortunate events, if you yeah. will. Yeah, it can't just be like you like taking a bath and then something falls in. I feel like that's too boring for. <laughs> I feel for like this Final... this conversation has gone completely off the rails. Let's <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Okay, let's move on to what we've been reading. HT, you, you are the only one of us that has been reading and educating yourself this week. So tell us, what have you been reading? Yes, I joined this subscription called Book of the Month, uh, which is a subscription service uh, that you get a new book monthly. You get sent it in a package, and it's a hard, usually a hardcover uh, or paperback book. And uh, it's one of the new releases of the month. And each month you get like, a choice of five books with little synopses and little descriptions of the genre and um, what kind, if you like this book, will you like this book kind of thing. And um, you get to choose one and uh, you can roll over your credits to another month. And my friends and I are actually joined this all together so we can do this a sort of semi book club, even though we've been all too busy to actually read our books. But the first book I received is the January book, which I haven't finished yet or really started, but it's called The Removed. It's by Brendan Hobson. And it's a um, family drama about this Native American family who live uh, on a reservation. And the eldest son in this family died from a, a police shooting. And it takes place several years after uh, his death. And it's um, this combination of family drama meets sort of Cherokee folklore dream uh, tale. And uh, the interweaving of those kind of two genres, and it's it's really great. It's very very heavy so far, but uh, it's a fantastic, I think, debut book from Brennan Hobson. And I 
this is um, a subscription service that I've been curious about too because it mostly highlights new authors uh, and new books, which is something that I, I have kind of thought, fallen behind on. I mostly have just been tinkering and and older books or classics that I've been wanting to catch up on. So this is a fun way of uh, keeping up with new books and newer releases and uh, keeping up with the whatever is going on in the book world these days. So that's The Removed by Brandon Hobson, and it's good so far. Wait, so who is choosing which book is the book of the month? We all kind of look at the books together. And usually it's just a, a collection of five books that they give out to all their subscribers um, or like that they describe to all their subscribers. And uh, we look at them and we kind of just vote on which one we want to do. So that's it's been it's a pretty informal process, but uh, it's it's exciting. I'm excited to, fi- to finish it and talk about it with my friends. <laughs> but who chooses the five options, too? Is like I, I, I wonder, like, how look, how is this? um formulated like who who is the editor here that is like choosing like here's the five books for this month i don't know whoever is running the company i suppose and curating it uh it's well curated it's a very like nicely designed website that gives bite-sized descriptions of these books and kind of gives you a sense of what they're like so whoever's running it is doing a good job i didn't do enough research to find out who is running it so (laughs) i will say as someone who used to be a member of this before my unread book pile got even bigger than it should be uh it they do reprint the books, usually on different paper stock with like a special logo for the book of the month on it. So I think it's whatever deals they can make with, you know, certain publishers uh, depends. I think that dictates what five books are available. Ah, uh-huh. and is it more affordable than if you like went to Amazon and bought the book? I can't say it's always more affordable, but uh, I use it for about a year. It was great. It was just once a, once a month, you know, you pay your subscription and you get to go pick a book and it was really fun. I'm not sure if, affordability is your thing um maybe not but it's like it's but it's like a window into ooh, what's hot what's popular what are people reading it was it was really in it was really useful for that reason uh but like i said it's just a matter of can you keep up with that uh and for me it was an issue of being a new book every month on top of the books i buy from amazon once or twice a week just because i want them so it ended up not being worth it for me but it is a really cool service well yeah. very cool okay let's move on to what we've been watching I I think I mentioned last week or the week before that I had been watching some Apple TV Plus uh, series that I was unable to talk about because of an embargo. And that series is For All Mankind Season 2. I, I was a fan of the first season. This is the alternate history show. It um, The first season kind of took us through the Apollo era of space travel. Uh, what if global... What if the global space race never ended is basically the question to ask. What if Russia landed on the moon before us? How would that have changed history, innovations, politics, you know, the world in general? And also the lives of these people that are, you know, some of them are historical people that are famous and some are created solely for the show. Um, The second season takes a fast forward nearly a full decade ahead to the 1980s. And the lead characters from the first season have kind of progressed into leadership roles and some other, you know, there's stuff going on with them. Uh, There's some craziness going on on this moon base that we have, like, installed in the first season. And uh, it might lead to the first space war, a cold war in space of sorts. Uh, Now, uh, I guess, like, 
this season is basically asking now, you know, now that the U.S. military is becoming involved in this space project, what does that mean for the future of space exploration? What does that mean where with our beef with Russia? You know, how is this all going to escalate? Uh, season two is more personal. It's a bit less pretentious than the first season. It's definitely darker. Uh, the budget feels bigger to meet the story's more ambitious circumstances. Um, that said, some of the storylines, the per- more personal storylines, seem like a little bit of missteps. Um, I don't, I don't think I like this as much as I liked season one, but I'm still very, it's still very good. I'm still very interested. I'm looking forward to season three. I, I, I don't know where the show is headed because, at the rate that they're going, like, I guess season three might catch up to like now, maybe even, maybe season three, season four. So it's like I feel like Ronald Moore with the show is kind of forging his own alternate history into where he what he did with, you know, Star Trek. But I guess it's probably not going to go to Star Trek because (laughs) how events are unfolding here. It doesn't seem like uh, the ideals of Star Trek are at the at the the focus here. And it's, you know, it's, it's kind of how we would really deal with this if we if we were still you know, forging ahead, like as we should have many years ago with like us trying to explore uh, space, try to, uh, you know, colonize Mars, do all those things that uh, I guess now Elon Musk is uh, trying to do uh, with SpaceX. But um, yeah, Uh, Jacob, I I wanted to ask you on, on the air, like, why have you not watched this? I feel like this might be your jam. Like, it's not as positive as... I think you like shows to be, but it is as complicated as I think you like these kind of uh, things to be. And I know you're a big, like, you know, space and sci-fi guy. Yeah, I'm also a big Ronald Moore fan. I think his work on Star Trek, he worked in some of my favorite years of Star Trek, and he created Battlestar Galactica, the new version, which is phenomenal. But yeah, even his Trek tends to be the more pessimistic Trek, the Trek that questions, you know, the mission of the entire universe. Uh, But yeah, I... I know this is probably a show I would enjoy. I love alternate history and I love Moore's work. It's just a matter of how often I fire up Apple TV plus. So it's a question of, it's not like lingering on my brain. Like I don't fire up my Apple TV plus very often, unless I'm rewatching Ted Lasso. Then <laughs> I see that in the corner and go, Oh, I should watch that as opposed to every other service where I'm constantly on them and constantly seeing what's what I need to catch up on. So you're correct. I would probably like this. I just need to be reminded of it enough times. Probably. By the way, Apple TV Plus, I think like emailed me a couple weeks ago, my my subscription with the service had expired because I got a subscription when I got a new iPhone a year ago and it expired. And then they emailed me and they're like, oh, here, we're going to extend your subscription by like a few months or something. So I, I I'm I don't think many people are probably watching Apple TV Plus <laughs> because they're like, please, please watch our shows. Um, but I don't know. I really like the show and I, I, Apple TV plus has some good shows and I feel like nobody knows it even exists or if they know it exists, they just don't go to the app. Um, it's, it's interesting too, Jacob. I feel like you would connect with the show in the way that I sometimes do where I'm watching an episode and a series of events happen involving some kind of interesting person or thing that happens. And I actually go on my phone to like, you know, Wikipedia or Google to look up if like any of these characters or these situations were actually based on reality. And and I learned that like some things that seem like they were just purely invented for the show were really based on 
actual things that happened. Maybe they didn't turn, you know, maybe they played out in a different way than reality because of how the course of this history is going in a different direction. But it's, I don't know, I, it, it's interesting to learn about real history from fake history, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, that's, I, I love it when any kind of writer does that. I, I love when, I mean, it's good, it's good historical fiction or this historical, you know, um, alternate reality where they just smudge it just enough to go off that track of actual history. That's, that's actually the, the most intriguing thing you've said so far, Peter. I'm, yeah. <laughs> that may actually push me on to this. HD, what have you been watching? Uh, so in the aftermath of uh, Christopher Plummer's passing, I know a lot of people were watching a lot of his films, uh, some more beloved than the others, and I decided to go back to one that is, yeah, very sentimental, very treacly, but one that I hold close in my heart, and that's The Sound of Music. And I, have, I haven't actually seen this since I was a kid. I used to have one of those uh, VHS copies that had like the two tapes. Uh, that were split in the intermission. By the way, we need to bring back intermissions to movies. And I know this is a conversation that happens every couple of months because <laughs> movies are getting longer, but we really need intermissions back. And this movie isn't even that long long compared to some of the biggest um, run times that we've had today. It's like two and a half hours. And so I, what Endgame was like two hours, 50 minutes. I don't remember. <laughs> so um, rant aside... <laughs> I really, really love uh, Sound of Music, despite uh, how saccharine and sentimental and cheesy it is. I have memorized many lines of dialogue from that movie, as I realized as, as I was watching it again. Um, but I did find myself being more interested uh, and more invested in different aspects of the movie than I was as a kid. Like, as a kid, I just wanted to watch um, uh, Maria and the the children sing about puppets and and so and and. Uh, song notes but uh this time around i i found myself well more watching christopher Plummer's performance uh, mostly because this he was kind of the the inciting incident for me watching this but also being interested in the the way that they seeded in some of the political undercurrents in the film and uh the anti-nazium throughout nazism throughout uh and christopher Plummer is surprisingly fun in this role i actually i didn't realize it back when i first watched it but he's really flirty and mischievous and just kind of like has this twinkle in his eye which is far more different than the stoic uh character i remembered as a kid and uh, i really liked the um just kind of the drama and the interactions that happened between the adults a lot more this time around and i uh, was almost waiting for the the songs to end so i can get to see more christopher Plummer and uh julie andrews uh gazing at each other which was always a lot of fun uh julie andrews uh, is an angel in this movie she's magical really uh she's like on some sort of magical fairy dust in this performance um but i it made me wonder too i had a lot of thoughts while going through this two and a half hour movie uh why was the sound of music in particular that was that sort of universal film from almost everyone's childhood i'm i'm assuming that you guys all watched as kids um, I might be making a wrong assumption, but everyone I knew growing up had at least seen Sound of Music once. It was like a staple in all of our childhoods and everyone thinks about it, um, like refers back to it and it's like heavily referenced in pop culture. And I wonder why it was specifically this film because it was made in like 1965. Uh, so many other films that were made in that decade, even as big as they were, uh, are less watched than Sound of Music is. Uh, why do you think that is, guys? And am I wrong in assuming that... It was a childhood staple for all of you. 
HT. I didn't see it until college. Okay, never mind then. <laughs> no, it was it was a childhood staple for me. I definitely grew up with this. And I think the answer to your question is probably because it's one of those movies that was broadcast a ton on you know, like ABC, it just became like a, a tradition where I think it was like every Christmas and maybe it still even is um, like every Christmas for years and years and years, this movie was on and maybe like even multiple times, not not quite to the level of a, a Christmas story on TBS where it's like a 24 hour kind of thing. But um, maybe over the course of the holiday season, they would play it, you know, once or twice or something. And I think because of the the age, the, the period where it came out and then like when TV's sort of... Uh, you know, like when when pop culture became uh, the pop culture that we know it, uh, you know, today, I think it resonated with a lot of people who maybe saw it originally, maybe in theaters or something as kids and then wanted to show it to the next generation. And then just so many generations growing up with it because, you know, uh, pop culture wasn't as splintered as it is now. And I think it was just like one of those sort of almost mono monocultural uh, experiences that everybody had before. Like, I, I don't think we're going to have something like that again um, outside of, you know, maybe Marvel movies or something. But uh, especially for a film like The Sound of Music, I, I feel like that's probably where it came from. Yeah, I was exposed to it as a kid. From My mom loved this movie and she would have it on nonstop. And I, I think it made me hate the movie as a kid <laughs> and hate musicals. It was that. But, um, you know, I, I was just doing the search of, uh, on this when Ben was talking and, you know, this movie did play for nearly five years in theaters during wow. its original theatrical run. And then uh, when it, it, I think Ben is hit the nail or hit the hammer on the nail or whatever you want to say, um, because the it first aired on ABC in 1976 and ABC paid like 15 million dollars, which is equivalent to like almost 70 million dollars today for a one time only broadcast. And that broadcast got a 49 percent share. Of, on Nielsen, which if you know, if you understand Nielsen numbers, that means that 50% of America was watching that movie on TV that, you know, that had TV in the late seventies. So I think like this just became a thing that like it, it became a tr tradition on TV that like everybody kind of celebrated. Wow. The more, you know, yeah, uh, I, I didn't want to ask you guys, like, what do you guys think about, because HD, you brought up the idea of intermissions. I want to uh, talk about intermissions, but like those those VHS tapes, they used to come in like multiple, you know, multiple tapes. Like I remember Titanic had it. Titanic had uh, it. I had that one. Yeah. Like, what do you guys feel about that? Like, is there any nostalgia for the intermission that would be had from the the double VHS tape of a movie? Uh, well, my wife and I just watched um, the Lord of the Rings trilogy on Blu-ray and the extended edition, even on a Blu-ray, you have to pause and and or stop the, the disc and like insert another one. So uh, it's not just a VHS thing. That kind of thing is still sort of around um, even for more modern movies. Really? I didn't know that the Lord of the Rings movies were split by. Was that always the case or is that like a new edition? Uh, no, no, it's because uh, I have the uh, the extended edition, the older Blu-ray, not the and did it on that too. You had to once I, you had to switch discs, and they kept it for the new version as well. I totally do not remember that, and I've definitely watched those on Blu-ray. Uh, Chris, what do you think of this? Is like this disruptive of the cinematic experience, or no? I mean, uh, I like the idea for a long movie. I, I uh, you know, I grew up in the era of VHS, and there was always something cool about those double VHS tapes, like, you know, 
JFK had one, and I'm a big JFK fan. And I just love that it had the, the two boxes and, and uh, like the Godfather and stuff like that. But uh, it's it's strictly a nostalgia thing. I'm not you know I'm not like ah I wish they'd bring those back. But I you know I did you know enjoy it when I was when I was a young lad back in the day. It, it did kind of like enhance your expectations, right? Like when you saw that in the store or at like Blockbuster. Yeah, it, I mean, was like the two- it made you feel like you were watching some serious shit. Like, oh man, yeah. this got this has two tapes. This is a <laughs> this is a real movie for adults. Yeah, I feel like the same thing happened later on when they they ended up having like multi disc DVDs of a movie like with special features. But then everything ended up having like multi disc, and then you had like you know Pearl Harbor has like three discs. It's like, um, but yeah, like I feel like it, it did add a, uh, a more epicness to the scale. Jacob, I feel like you must have an opinion on this. Oh yeah, uh, I very much believe what Chris said, which is when there was a uh, WHS event, the movie was very big and important, and also led to me making some assumptions about movies. Like for years as a kid, I thought for sure that Oliver Stone's Nixon was one of the best movies ever made because it had two VHS tapes. And Oliver Stone's Nixon <laughs> is not one of the best movies ever made. Not even top tier Oliver Stone. Uh, but yeah, it, it really did sell the idea that, oh, this is a big deal. This is something that's exciting, exciting that the two rent, you're getting two tapes for the price of one. Wow. And I, mean, I guess now as adults, we know that a long movie doesn't necessarily mean a good movie. Uh, but yeah, the experience, the weight of carrying home double tapes from Blockbuster is something that streaming can never replicate. I was so confused as a kid about these double uh, VHS releases because my dad used to record like movies off of like HBO on television and he'd record it in the what is it extended play the six hour like where you get six hours on a VHS tape instead of like the normal like SP two hours or whatever. And I was like, well, why can't they just fit this onto one tape? Like, why are do we even know the reason? Is it because of quality? I guess we don't know. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I guess always so. assumed that. <laughs> oh no. I, I was always confused. It's like, do, do we really need two tapes for this movie? Like, I can fit three movies on my VHS tape at home. <laughs> okay. Uh sorry, HD. We we have we've gone off the rails. You know, partially because Brad's not here. So we, we have some more time to kind of chat and stuff. Uh, yeah, that's that's how I'm going to excuse it. Uh, HG, what else have you been watching? Uh, I also watched the latter half of High Society. And uh, I say the latter half is because my roommate was watching it. And I kind of just walked in about halfway through and sat down and decided to watch the rest of it. And Ben has talked about High Society before. It's the musical version of... Uh, the Philadelphia Story, which uh, stars Bing Crosby, uh, Grace Kelly, and Frank Sinatra. And I was very surprised to, to learn when watching this the latter half of this movie uh, that Bing Crosby was cast in the Cary Grant role um, as uh, the, the ex-husband of uh, Grace Kelly's character. And this really shocked me because Bing Crosby doesn't really have the same... Uh, I don't. I, don't I, I guess the only word to say is like swagger as Cary Grant, and um, I, I do. I wonder. I kind of felt like this was a piece of miscasting. Although I do think that his characterization of the character uh, was a bit more along the lines of a straightforward romantic role versus um, the sort of cad that Cary Grant plays. Uh, but uh, Frank Sinatra. I do think that Frank Sinatra and Bing Crosby could have switched roles, and it would have been 
slightly better. Am I wrong in this, Ben? I just, I, I thought it like, would have been so well done if like they switched it like that. I never thought about that, but now that you mention it, I think you're 100% right. Uh, I think I think Bing Crosby has Jimmy Stewart energy, yeah. and um, I think he, he might have been a better fit for that role. Yeah, he's got like this wholesome guy next door energy and frank sinatra is kind of a cad too so it it would have been it would have been more fitting but maybe they're trying to switch things up i don't know um but yeah i high society was basically word for word philadelphia story with you know more musical numbers uh i do think that grace kelly's performance uh, is not as fun as Catherine hepburn's but it does fit more into the characterization of her character as being sort of like that that woman on a pedestal. So she fits that description more, but she's not as fun to watch as Catherine Hepburn. Uh, I just, I really like the Philadelphia story, despite my dislike for how the pairings turned out. But um, yeah, high society, fun time. Uh, the next thing I watched was uh, a movie that was not really of my choice. My friend, it was my friend's birthday. And we decided to do a Netflix party of Olympus Has Fallen, uh, which I'd never seen before. My friend is a really big fan of uh, scumbag action cinema (laughs) of the Gerard (laughs) Butler variety. And uh, so we watched this movie. I was kind of half paying attention to it, but what a miserable movie this is. It's, It's really dark and violent in a way that feels kind of unenjoyable, but... It's almost impressive how um, in how how hard they go <laughs> with the with its action and with its uh, uh violence and gore. Um, and it was interesting watching this too in sort of the aftermath of the the uh, storming of the Capitol because there is a whole like storming of the Capitol sequence here. Um, yeah, the depictions of Asian of Koreans of North Koreans and Asians in general are not great, but you know. It's it's exactly what I expect expected this movie to be. <laughs> Morgan Freeman and Angela Bassett are both in this movie, and I was kind of I I knew Morgan Freeman was, but I'm like, wow, how did they get both of these like high profile actors to kind of slum it for Olympus Has Fallen? Um, hey, checks. The answer is six <laughs> figures minimum, probably seven. Probably, um, but yeah. That, that's Olympus has fallen. I don't really have much to say about it. It's exactly what did I said. Did you take a shot every time that Gerard Butler stabbed somebody in the head? I was yeah. going to say the exact same thing. <laughs> <laughs> We're waiting on the same joke, Ben. <laughs> Does anyone have any fond thoughts of about Olympus has fallen, though? It's dog crap. I mean, it was the same year as uh, White House Down, which is the exact same movie, but pretty much better in every way. <laughs> I think I preferred Olympus has fallen at the time because it was like... Uh, I don't know. Um, White House Down to me felt like a little bit too, um, like safe is the wrong word, but like sanded down a little bit. And that that sort of excessive quality to it, uh, to Olympus Has Fallen, sort of gave it a little bit of an edge in my book. But yeah, I have not revisited it. And, and I don't know if I would really uh, almost be capable of revisiting it now, considering the events of earlier this year. Like, I feel like it would just be a very, very um, disconcerting rewatch uh in this era but um yeah yeah um... i haven't seen olympus has fallen by i know white house down that was like roland emmerich right uh yeah it's very much i like white house down because it has that roland emmerich tone man that sort of i'm taking this seriously but i don't i'm not aware it's goofy tone 
and that's yeah. the tone that this material needs whereas uh Olympus has fallen is so dark and racist and upsetting and it's sequel even more <laughs> so like if the, the treatment of asian characters and Olympus has fallen is terrible and somehow they make it even worse for you know middle eastern characters in the sequel Olympus oh, has lovely. fallen so um I, I never saw a third one uh, uh uh angel has fallen i don't know which you know group they decided to target with that one but these movies sum up trump's america in a way that you know movies made you know last year the year before really can't they really i think they're really nasty awful pieces of work i liked white house down i i do feel like emmerich's movies feel like they're made in the 90s still like he doesn't quite get the sensibilities of today it has this cheesiness which i'm guessing was what probably ben didn't like about it um i haven't seen any of the has fallen series but i was interested in seeing olympus has fallen because i remember reading that they actually consulted with uh, former Secret Service agents to, like, plan out the raid on, on, on the White House. Like, they actually, the way it plays out in the movie is how they say it could possibly happen. But I guess that's not something I really want to watch now. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, so, uh, is, did you have anything more to say on that movie, HJ? Not really. <laughs> No. I'd be happy to move on from the subject. Okay. Uh, Jacob, you've been rewatching the Saw movies. Yes. Uh, Saw All eight Saw movies hit HBO Max. My wife's not seen them. So we were watching all the Saw movies one, one at a time. While drinking, of course, is, is our tradition with horror movies. And we watched Saw 1, Saw 2, and Saw 3. And I'm on the record that there are, of the eight Saw movies, there are four good Saw movies. They are Saw 4, Saw 3, Saw 6, and Saw 8, a.k.a. Jigsaw, are all the good ones. And the rest are for completionists only, although you need to watch them all to understand the story, because by part four, the Saw story has gotten so complicated with so many characters and overlapping <laughs> timelines that if you don't watch them in order, they become incredibly confusing. You, you don't know who's who or when's what and what's going on. Uh, but they're, they're so strange because they're such a time capsule. I mean, it really is a throwback to the to the eighties where Friday thirteenth Nightmare on Elm Street were releasing a movie a year no matter what. And it was the idea that we we pump all these out every year, you know, quality be damned. If quality happens, it's an accident. And that's kind of what makes those other eighties movies appealing in, you know, decades later is, oh man, let's watch a whole bunch of these movies that are crammed out in one window and just compare them. And Saw is getting to that point, you know, fifteen, you know, sixteen years after the first movie, <laughs> uh, we reached the era where even the bad saws are now interesting and it's really is fun to watch them because saw one was, was a Sundance movie. It was James Wan's low budget thriller, his introductory his introduction to the world. And in many ways you can really see the seeds of James Wan's future films in it. And they really don't. <laughs> saw one is also a really small movie. It feels very contained and realistic by the sequel. They throw out the window and by saw three, which is uh, of course saw, Lee one the director of invisible man, uh, really who turned into a terrific filmmaker you know, wrote Saw 1, 2, and 3. And by Saw 3, even he's like, ah, oh, screw it, we're going crazy. And Saw 3 is just full of wild, you know, insane garbage, and I love it. Uh, but yeah, these movies, time has made them better. Time has made them interesting. Uh, at the time, it was just, oh my god, this is torture porn. Why are you watching this? Oh no, well, think of the children. And 16 years later, it's just a really interesting chapter in what are the horror movie tastes of right now. And for, you know, a number of years, Saw was leading the pack until Paranormal Activity, you know, stole its thunder. And led the next five years of what people wanted out of horror movies. So I think Saw is a really interesting footnote. Not even a footnote, it's a chapter in the history of horror cinema. Uh, Chris, uh, do you agree with me that one, three, six, and eight are the good ones? Uh, you know, I I have conflicting thoughts on this, the Saw franchise. I 
I never really got that much into it. Um, uh, one is definitely, the, I think, the best of the bunch. And it, it's interesting to watch one now because everyone thinks of Saw as this like ultra gory franchise. And the first movie really isn't that gory. The first movie is really vibing with the same sort of thing that Seven did, where most of the violence is sort of like hidden and it's more about atmosphere. And then all the sequels after that were like, all right, let's, let's ramp up the gore. Let's, let's change someone's lip to a car and drive the car and rip their face off. And you know, none of that's really in the first movie. Um, uh, what I appreciate about the soft franchise is how hard they tried to keep that continuity going. Like they could have easily just been like, all right, fuck it. We're just going to have these films stand on their own. And they really, really tried hard even when it got like ridiculous, they were like, we got to keep the continuity. We got to keep, uh, it gets to a point where all the sequels, they're constantly like cutting back to previous movies to explain how certain things fit in. And it makes zero sense. And I appreciate that, <laughs> you know, a lot of horror sequels, they give up on continuity and they're just like, screw it. You know, no one cares about this. And the Saw franchise, they were really gung ho about that. And it, probably because they, we're just constantly making them on top of each other. Like they, they, there was a period where they were literally coming out every year on Halloween and it sort of forced them to be like, all right, we have to acknowledge the continuity because the previous movie is so fresh in everyone's mind. So uh, while I never particularly loved saw and I, I'm a, I'm a fan of everything else James Wan did after it. I do appreciate, uh, you know, what they were going for. I guess that's how I can put it. Yeah. I guess to put a note, what Chris just said, it cannot be emphasized enough that Saw 4 takes place before, during, and after Saw 3. <laughs> that was such a mind-blowing reveal for me. I remember seeing that movie in theaters and like just being, you know, like mixed on the first three, but seeing that and being like, holy shit, do I love these movies now? Just because <laughs> of like the audacity of that choice first in Saw 4. And, you know, it, it sort of never really recaptured that uh, jolt of electricity that the fourth one gave me. But man, what an incredible moment. <laughs> it's almost like the Saw movies form a jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> they do <laughs> you know I, I really like the movies for the continuity and the interconnectedness like i love when movies kind of uh have different storylines like pulp fiction or go and then you find out that one storyline actually informs the other storyline from a different point of view later on and i will say and tell me if this is a hot take or not jacob and chris but i do think that these films play better now that you can kind of binge watch them on TV than they do in a yearly release schedule. Oh yeah, I'd say so. I mean, they really do play like, you know, the world's trashiest television show in a lot of ways. So I think you're, I think that's hundred percent correct. I think it's the same way how binging Friday 13th movies in 2021 is a lot more satisfying than it would have been in the eighties where we have a whole year to wait on a really terrible Jason takes Manhattan type movie. Whereas if he's binging them all now it's like oh yeah this is just what were they thinking at this year time for the next one and i think the same thing applies to saw so i think you're accurate i will say despite my uh sort of mixed reaction to the franchise i am very excited for uh whatever it's called spiral from spiral. the book of saw just because i i'm very curious to see what that's going to be because i loved how like that trailer was so serious and i was like yes they're not even like winking at us they're like we're fucking taking this Saw movie very seriously with Chris Rock. And so I'm very excited about that. <laughs> okay, uh, Jacob, what else have you been watching? 
I'm also rewatching Penny Dreadful. Uh, Chris talked about the show a few months ago, I think, maybe. Uh, time's lost all meaning. Uh, but it's really good. It's on Netflix right now. And it's a Showtime series. It stars uh, Eva Green, Josh Hartnett, uh, Harry Treadaway, and Timothy Dalton. Is uh, very sad um, det- supernatural detectives, essentially, in Victorian London. And essentially, Universal Monsters, the show, uh, lots of gothic horror, vampires, werewolves, witches, uh, extreme violence and gore, but also people being like super sad. Like it's it's a combination of a, a a very astute period drama full of accurate costumes and period details, and men and women being sad and coughing the handkerchiefs to show they're dying of you know uh, whatever they're dying of, um, but also just like completely rad monster stuff. So it's just this great overlapping circle, this Venn diagram of do you like period dramas about sad people? Do you like stories about people hunting down monsters? Overlap here it is, pain dreadful. It's great. Uh, HD. We talk about this offline, you and I. Pain dreadful. I think will, is something that you would really enjoy. I think Chris recommended it to me too because it does sound very, very up my alley. Like, wow, this, movie, so this show is made for HT. Uh, I will put it on the list that's in my head and isn't actually a list, but just <laughs> names that <laughs> pop up every now and then. I will say that with only three seasons and twenty-seven episodes, it's a very easy show to like knock out pretty quickly. Oh, only twenty-seven episodes. Okay, wait, where is it streaming again? Uh, it's a Showtime show, but it's streaming on Netflix right now. Oh. HT, watch the first episode. I promise you the final few minutes of the first episode, you're going to be like, oh, fuck yes. This is the best show. Because that's <laughs> like I watched it. And like the, the final minutes of the first episode does this thing where even though it's predictable, you're going to be like, yes, I love what this show is doing. And you will be hooked. I promise. Okay. Yeah, I'll say that the end of the first one and the end of the second one like made me a fan. Those like the, the, the two endings, the first two episodes are weirdly linked in a way you'll see HT. And uh, they said, okay, no matter what, I'm in this show for life. Okay. Uh, real quick, before we move on, I have had the show in my queue for probably, I don't know, six years or something and just have not gotten around to watching it. Uh, now that it's over, I mean, it's been over for a long time, but do you guys think that the, does it end in a satisfying way? Yes. It does. A lot of a lot of fans were angry with how it ends because it ends on kind of a down note, but it definitely wraps the story up if that's what you're asking yeah and okay. i should be noted at the time they ended it without announcing it was the ending they said oh season three finale and then it's a very definitive can't this show cannot continue sorry uh um ending <laughs> so and they, and they had they had like interviews ready to go at the time saying like yes that was the ending um we we chose make it a surprise ending not announce it like it's the first time i've ever seen that in modern tv where a prestige tv show let its actual ending happen without announcing it was an ending and people were pissed uh but it actually is a it, it's it's like the the walking dead comics right didn't that just happen like last year or something yeah, yeah they they announced that last issue like a week in advance it was wild you know that, that's such a go ahead i'm sorry i was gonna say that's such a bold approach and that sounds like something i would want to happen but i'm guessing i in reality i really wouldn't want that to happen because it kind of seems like a blind side in a bad way no? Yeah, I think it's good. It's a good question to have. Like, like when, like, would it have the power it had at the time for fans if they knew this was the final season and final episode? They could build up knowing that oh, anything can happen. Whereas, an episode, whereas the finale is an episode where anything can and does happen, uh, but you don't know. Like, how do you get out of this? You can't. It's the end. <laughs> another a- show that did that is um the Nick, which is another show I recommend everyone watch, especially Jacob and HT. I don't know if you, either of you watched it, but the I think Nick rules. I haven't seen it. HT, you will love the Nick, so you should watch that too. But that did a similar thing where people didn't realize the ending was the the, the very <laughs> finite ending. I have a question about um, 
the ending of Penny Dreadful. Does that include that that series that they did with um, Natalie Dormer, Penny Dreadful, City of Angels, or is that a different thing? Is that a spinoff? It's like it's a completely just... different thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that's canceled too. Nobody watched it. <laughs> yeah. Although I, I kind of I kind of wish it had taken off. I think the idea of a different horror series, you know, in different eras, different locations, is a really cool idea. But uh, even even I, who you know, dug Penny Dreadful a lot, like I had no interest in anything from that show and i chris did you even watch it i know i know i didn't no i mean what appealed to me about penny dreadful well two things one is eva green obviously uh and she's not in this the, obviously that, sequel series and two is just i love that victorian setting like i i wasn't really interested in the i think it's like 1920s 1930s los angeles uh, 50s i think 50 I'm sorry. i got i was way off there but it's it's definitely it's more modern and i just really wasn't that interested in that I, I i wanted that you know that london fog everything's wet and grimy and shadowy sort of vibe i didn't really you know i didn't everything i don't really want a modern version of that but that's me and i will say this much i ben and, and h need to watch this so we can start sharing eva green gifts because <laughs> no actress is more committed to making such deranged faces as eva green and pain dreadful every face she has in every scene is a gift waiting to happen she's an incredible actress she has no vanity when it comes to looking horrible on screen and she's digging into it and she's so much fun and that's available now on netflix you said all 27 episodes yep all three seasons it's crazy that there's 27 episodes over three seasons. Remember when we would have to like watch 24 episodes in a whole season of TV? Who thought that was a good idea? Sometimes I want that though, Peter. Sometimes I do. <laughs> okay, Chris, what have you been watching? Uh, what have I been watching? Let me look at the doc. I can tell you, you, you watched Battleship. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. I watched Battleship. Uh <laughs> <laughs> so I have to I have to preface why why I watch Battleship. I have to explain myself here. So I have an elliptical machine, and when I do the elliptical machine, I watch you know movies, and I've found that I can't watch you know good stuff when I work out because I just get so wrapped up in the movie. I'm not you know I'm not giving it my all. I'm not working up a sweat. I'm not you know burning the calories I need to burn. So when I do the elliptical machine, I tend to watch junk. I watch stuff that. I know is going to be trashy and stupid and I don't have to, you know, get swept up in, in the cinematography. So I saw that battleship was on HBO max and I was like, this will be the perfect elliptical machine movie. And it was, uh, because it is awful. What a, what a stunningly bad movie this is. Um, obviously it's based on the board game battleship and it's from Hasbro who, you know, obviously they, they made the Transformers movies and it, it's plain as day that they were like, look, Transformers are making us tons of money on, on the big screen. Let's just make Battleship and let's just basically make it a Transformers movie because it has that same orange and teal color palette. It has that same just scenes where just CGI globs that you really can't decipher are smashing into other cgi globs uh it's 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 astoundingly stupid and uh but i was never bored and that you know that counts that counts when i'm when i'm on the elliptical machine uh rihanna <laughs> is in this uh this is her her like movie debut uh she for some reason her character never takes off her hat and i can't figure out why she wears like a baseball hat the whole movie i don't know if it's like a just a thing she wanted to do, but there's literally a scene where she falls off a boat into the, you know, the ocean and she deliberately holds her hat on her head. And then she gets out of the water and the hat is soaked and she just 
doesn't take it off the whole movie. He doesn't take her hat off. Uh, Taylor Kitsch, I guess that's how you say his name, isn't this? He is fucking terrible. Oh my god, what a <laughs> what a bad actor! Like <laughs> there's there's a scene where he watches his brother. And his brother is named Stonehopper, by the way. That's the character's name. And he's played by Alexander Sarsgaard. And he watches his brother explode. And it cuts to Taylor Kitsch's face as after explosion. And there's not like a trace of emotion or acknowledgement. Like his eye doesn't even twitch. He's just like looking into the camera. Like, do you feel anything? Because your brother just exploded, Taylor Kitsch? I don't know. You're a bad actor. Uh, Liam Neeson in the movie for like two scenes vanishes shows up at the very very end to remind you he's in the movie um the 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 aliens look like humans but they have these like quills coming out of their chins that make them look like abe lincoln it's just a disaster from beginning to end so (laughs) what about the part where a bunch of 80 year old veterans uh, jump on a battleship and start blasting aliens while acdc is blaring that's the scene that's the scene that makes this movie there are there are two different acdc needle drops this movie but yes that's that's one and none of that there are also two different scenes where characters say motherfucker and it cuts away before the f word like they don't do that just once they do it twice where it's just like shoot this mother and it cuts to an split and it happened two times like you don't need that twice in your movie oh what a fucking bad movie good lord anyway tangential question (laughs) have you seen friday night lights the movie or the show? The, the answer show. to the answer is no to both. So, no. well, the show is great. The, the heartbreak, <laughs> the heartbreak to see Jesse Plemons and Taylor Kitsch, who are both wonderful on Friday Night Lights and share a, a number of scenes. Uh, seeing them reunite on the big screen in Battleship is really heartbreaking if you're a Friday Night Lights fan. So I'm glad you didn't experience that heartbreak too. I mean, Jesse Plemons, great actor. This is like the only bad performance I've ever seen from him. Like he's tasked with playing like the funny guy. So he's always making jokes and none of them are funny. And they're also like really racist. Like, cause there's a part where uh, he's like mocking like the, the Chinese language. And it's like, why, what is going on with this movie? It's just so bad. Anyway, Battleship, now streaming on HBO Max. I can't recommend it enough. <laughs> this movie how is we... extremely not boring. Chris is right. It is not boring. In this, <laughs> You will not be bored watching Battleship. Right, because I watched, after this, I watched another elliptical movie, and I didn't put it on the list because I didn't really talk about that much, but it's, it's Safe House, the movie with Denzel Washington and Ryan Reynolds. And that movie, it's better made. It's got a better script. And I was fucking bored to tears while watching it. So just goes to show you, you can have a better script for your movie, but it can still end up just being boring. You know, I guess what what Safe House needed was multiple ACDC drops and characters <laughs> saying motherfucker and getting cut off and Rihanna keeping her hat on. I guess that's what all movies need, really. How do we feel about Peter Berg as director? Because I feel like there's some movies of Send his. Send him to The Hague. That's what I think. <laughs> really? <laughs> wow. He stinks. He is, he's a piece of shit. I don't care. Go to hell, Peter Berg. <laughs> there's some movies of his is that I think are good. Like, like uh, what? Name one, Peter. Well, first of all, I, I love Friday Night Lights, and I feel like that pilot is really a great pilot. Um, I enjoy the rundown. I don't think it's a good movie, but it's a, a fun movie. Um, I think he's a filmmaker who doesn't have personality. And I think that's the problem I, because the quote, Pulp Fiction personality goes a long way. Cause, uh, you know, uh, 
when watching Battleship, I kept thinking of Transformers and those Transformer movies are a mess, but they have sort of a personality because of Michael Bay and Peter Berg is sort of like this like faceless, shapeless thing. He just goes and he points his camera and he collects a paycheck and he waves an American flag around. And that's really I it. I, I feel like you can tell a Peter Berg film. He has that kind of uh, yeah, because you're like, style. oh, turn this off. <laughs> <laughs> he is he is Diet Coke Michael Bay. He really is Diet Coke Michael Bay. And yeah. I, I think that Friday Night Lights the movie is good. His pilot for Friday Night's a TV series is great. One, maybe one of the great TV pilots of all time. Uh, but yes. he's out of that show immediately after that. He's not back. And that show is taken over by a superb writing staff. Uh, so I'm, I think Peter Berg is like, looking at IMDb right now like Hancock. Did, did you see Patriot's Day? I liked Patriot's Day. I did not see that. I did see his most recent, what was that, like Mile whatever 26 oh, i don't know what it's called mile 22 i also did spencer confidential a movie that nobody saw well i guess like I, sorry it's on netflix so everybody saw it but nobody remembers it mile 22 is like one of the worst movies i've ever seen it's like <laughs> stunningly bad it's not even like entertaining bad it's it's very bad i look at this lone survivor is my least favorite peter Berg movie that movie is trash yeah I remember liking Very Bad Things, but I haven't seen that in many years. Very Bad Things has its charms, but that's like a small, nasty movie. And I think if he had sort of stuck with that instead of making these like big, ultra patriotic messes, he would be better off. Okay, uh, Chris, let's move on to Greenland. Why did you watch Greenland? Right. Speaking of Gerard Butler movies, uh, Greenland. So I got I got sent the Blu-ray of this and it's in my latest Blu-ray column, which I urge you to read because I'm sure no one does. But, uh, you know, I thought I knew what I was getting into with this because it's a Gerard Butler movie. It's a disaster movie. It's about a comet that's crashing into Earth. And I thought it was going to be basically, you know, Olympus has fallen, but with a comet, you know, because you know, nothing against Mr. Gerard Butler. He's very good at what he does, but what he tends to do is, is trash. So I was expecting trash. And I got to tell you, this movie is, is surprisingly good and it's surprisingly effective because even though it's a disaster movie, it's very uh, low key. Like, yes, there are scenes where, you know, there's shots where pieces of a comic crash into cities and blow shit up but it's really more of like this human drama. Um, you know, the setup is there's a comet. It's going to crash into earth. Gerard Butler is this uh, high profile structural engineer and uh, the government, they don't really say who, I guess it's the U S government. They're, they're relocating people to these bunkers in Greenland. Uh, and certain people have been selected to go to the bunkers to help rebuild society after the comet crashes. And because Gerard Butler is so good at building things, the logic is, you know, we need this guy to help rebuild the planet. So he gets selected and he and his family, you know, they go to this military base to get on a plane to fly to Greenland. And a series of events happens that keeps them from getting on the plane. And then things get worse when they get separated. Dry Butler gets separated from his wife and daughter. And so they all have to find their way back to each other. And then they have to find a way to get to Greenland, to get to the bunker. And the movie portrays all this in this sort of hyper realistic way where you, the entire time you're watching it you're like if there was a comet that was going to crash into earth this is pretty much exactly the chain of events that would be happening and you know i turned this on late at night thinking i was going to get like this dumb mindless action movie 
And the movie ended up giving me like this existential crisis where I felt like I was like having a panic attack at times because it's so good at portraying just how things will fall apart really quickly in situations like this. And like, there's this part where like they cut to a TV screen and it's like a military guy being interviewed by CNN or something. And they're they're talking about how the military is trying to keep order but the comet's going to crash into earth in like 24 hours. And the, the military guy is like, you know, we're doing the best we can, but we know in a few hours, it's all going to be for nothing. And like, just hearing it, like just spelled out like that bluntly, I was like, Jesus Christ, this movie is very upsetting. Cause like when you watch disaster movies, like independence day and, and so on, they don't really stop to think about how many you know thousands of people are going to die. It's really just about, look at how fun all these explosions are. And you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Those are very entertaining movies, but this is the opposite of that, where it's all about the human toll. And I'm shocked that this is, you know, a Gerard Butler movie. Cause like I said, I was expecting junk. So if you're sort of on the fence about like, Oh, another shitty Gerard Butler movie, I really urge you to check out Greenland because it's, it's a million times better than it has any right to be. I don't believe this Chris. <laughs> I'm, I'm you're, telling you're you the truth. Want to see like this movie. I'm, I'm uh, telling you, you will like it. It's very, it's, it's, it's very well made. It's very effective. Uh, Gerard Butler is really good in it. It's, it's a good movie. So Greenland. Yeah. You know, it wasn't originally going to be Gerard Butler. It was originally supposed to be Chris Evans, and it was a, uh, what's his name directing, uh, District Nine. Uh, Neil Blomp, yeah, Neil ah. Blomkamp was originally going to be the director. So I'm sure that would have been more. The movie you're thinking of, or thinking I guess, it was I don't going know. to be, I don't yeah, know, I don't know. actually. But yeah, but I really recommend it. It's, it was, a, it was a. I don't want to call it a pleasant surprise because, like I said, it made me upset. But it was a surprise <laughs> nonetheless. And then finally, I watched uh, Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar, which is a new movie that's coming out on VOD this week, and it's uh, Kristen Wiig and Annie Mumlow, who they both wrote uh bridesmaids together and they're both in this movie and they both wrote this movie and oh man this is a a delightful <laughs> silly movie um it remind it's based this is basically a muppet movie but all the muppets are played by humans and i kind of think that's exactly what they're going for because there's a scene where they directly reference the first muppet movie and I kind of think like Chris Wig and Annie Momo were like let's write a muppet movie without muppets and it, it has that same sort of just like silly goofball energy where like there are absolutely zero stakes and it's just about you know <laughs> laughing at how absurd everything is and this is just relentlessly silly um there's barely a plot they play women in their 40s who get fired from their job at, at jennifer convertibles and they decide to go to florida <laughs> and meanwhile there's this super villain who's also played by kristen wig who uh, is planning to unleash killer mosquitoes on, into this place in Florida where they're going, Vista Del Mar, because when she was a kid, she she got made fun of by the people there. So her plan is to just kill everyone there with killer mosquitoes. And Jamie Dornan plays like her henchman who's in love with her, and he goes there to execute the plan, but she, he falls in love with the other character played by Kristen Wiig, and it's just it's just so fucking silly and i it was like exactly what i needed to see because uh, you don't have to think too much about it you just sit back and you laugh at how um 
stupid it is. And I, I, I'm saying stupid in a loving way. It's not like, oh, that was stupid. It's like, that was stupid. And I enjoyed how stupid it was. There's like, there are multiple musical numbers and all the songs are just relentlessly dumb. Uh, there's like a talking crab. Uh, Andy Garcia shows up for one scene. It's, just, it's, it's a delight. Uh, I, I think it's coming to VOD this weekend. And if you're looking for something to take your mind off of literally everything and just laugh, I, I really recommend this. Chris, uh, Brad and I have talked about this off, off the show about how this the trailer looks like, in some alternate dimension, these two were SNL characters who finally got their MacGruber or yes. their hot rod. Is that an accurate description? Maybe, I guess, but it's even like dumber. <laughs> that, I mean, like, the, the, the thing, I, I guess this does remind me, it has that same sort of energy as MacGruber and it has like a Austin Powers vibe to it, I guess. But I really think like the Muppets is like the closest, I guess, like I'm talking like the early Muppet movies where, the Muppets were all the main characters and they were bare, like the humans were just in the background. Like that's what this is, but there are no Muppets. If that makes sense. You've just sold me on this for VOD. I'm renting this the day. It's available. This sounds wild. <laughs> you will not regret it. Trust me. I, you're going to, you're going to laugh and that's all that matters. I think I saw the trailer for this. Like one of the last times I was in a movie theater and I was like, what is this? What is going on here? And uh, this is directed by the guy that did that um, documentary. What was it? Uh, Too Funny to Fail? Too, yeah, Too Funny to Fail, The Life and Death of the Dana Carvey Show. And he's done a bunch of like TV stuff like New Girl and Fresh Off the Boat. Um, yeah, I'm going to add this to my list. Yeah, so everyone that is... watch it. You're going to laugh. But so, Barb so and Star, Barb go, and to Star. Vista, go to Vista Del Mar. And yeah, it'll be on um, VOD this Friday, February 12th. Ben, what have you been watching? Uh, my wife and I finished our rewatch of Lost. Um, we watched the uh, finale last night, and uh, it's just as great as it has always been. Um, season six, though, it's been a long time since I've rewatched the show, and I forgot how rough huge portions of that sixth season really are. Uh, in my mind, it was all like, oh, it's, you know, Sawyer and Miles, like a buddy cop kind of thing. Like that's most of the season. And that's really like, I don't know, like f four scenes in the, uh, over the course of like 16 episodes or something. Um, and uh, there's so much of like just this slog across the island and to the temple and Dogen and his interpreter and like all of this stuff that is just like uh, really dull and it, Saeed gets uh, like drowned and then brought back and uh, it, they really do a lot of the characters kind of nasty in, in that season but I really do think that the show culminates and and sort of concludes in the best possible way that it could and I I still was just blown away by you know the emotionality of, of that finale and and how well um almost every decision in that finale really works so um yeah lost uh still a, a great show i mean it, it's a more uh, it's a more complicated the show than i remember it being um and and maybe a little bit slightly more flawed than i remember it being because i've sort of built it up in my mind as like this is one of the the uh, end all be all, you know, TV shows. Um, it's still, I think, one of the best shows of all time, uh, just in terms of the the structure and the overall narrative and the way that they were able to um, introduce new players into the mix and uh, keep uh, mysteries going and and just uh, 
like tell propulsive stories and and make it uh, propulsive stories with an incredible background and make it um, look and feel incredible and vibrant and um, yeah, just like the super well paced. Uh, but yeah, there that that last season, man. There's some <laughs> there's there's some bumps before you get to the the glory of that finale. Squirrel so. baby Claire. <laughs> Oh, yes. Yeah. That whole, that's one of the characters that I feel like they really, um, I mean, it's so clear now that like, uh, the Damon Lindelof who exists currently, who, 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 uh, you know, oversaw Watchmen would never write a, a character the way that he wrote Claire, where like her entire personality is just pregnant and like, that's it. Um, so yeah, th- there are definitely some shortcomings uh, there, but it's it's sort of interesting to to look at as you know a, cart- a cultural artifact um, from what I mean. The, the finale aired eleven years ago, so um, yeah, it, it's uh, man, what a hell of a show! So uh, lost. The whole thing is on Hulu right now. If you'd like to dive in or uh, or rewatch or or what have you, I love that we're I, a pro Lost podcast even after all these years. That even <laughs> with, I think the ending's bad, but the show overall is still so great and so important and. I, I, I like that we all like Lost. That's why I like all of you. If we didn't like Lost, we couldn't be you know co- colleagues. So. <laughs> I, I will disagree with you, Jacob, though. I, I think that last episode is a good episode. I think this final season is not a good season, like I think Ben is alluding to. The first two episodes, I remember they had this like first two episodes. It was like a it was like airport. It was like LA, LAX or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember that being solid. I remember there being an episode like in the mid season that was like uh, about Richard Alpert's character. Abiturno. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the final episode was good. But the rest of this season, I think, was trash for me. Like, I, I love Lost, but this final season with the like the flash sideways, I don't know, it just did not work for me. I remember one of the first articles I wrote that gained actual traction, like in my like on the Internet and mild minor traction was i wrote a reaction post god so many years ago uh to the uh man in black flashback episode revealing the origin of um the smoke monster and the man mm-hmm. in black and all that is this man black the character i'm thinking of ben yes yeah. yeah and uh goodness gracious what a what a colossal failure of an episode to satisfyingly explain anything about key parts of that show's mythology but the fact that last season of lost broke my heart so hard but the fact that I still love Lost, I consider it a good dear friend who I want to revisit often, is a testament to how good Lost is. It, what a special show. Yeah, really for is. sure. Uh, okay, so then I also rewatched Rope, the Alfred Hitchcock movie from 1948. Um, I, I don't remember if we talked about this on the podcast or not. Have you guys seen Rope? I have. Oh, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. This is the one that has okay. the kind of gimmick that it's like one, one continuous shot. take, but yeah. isn't. Yes. They keep zooming the camera in on like shirts and stuff. Yeah, like yeah. Or, or like the chest, and then like it, it cuts like, it's, like a attention. brief blackness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, man, it's a really interesting movie. It's like it, so. I think uh, Hitchcock is sort of known for these like mystery plots, right? Like these thriller uh, movies, and this one I love just how it opens with this guy screaming, and you see these two guys just choking him to death with a rope. And it's like the opposite of a whodunit. Like the movie just comes right out in front and says like, these are the people who did this. These are the people who committed this crime. Now the entire movie is just going to be about whether or not they get caught. And like, it's all about, um, you know, just the, uh, the um, like overconfidence and just entitlement and um, really like dripping 
drippingly disgusting uh, arrogance of uh, especially one of the the killers and just how he is just constantly like alluding to this body that is inside this apartment where they're they're hosting this party and just um, making all of these double entendres and like little references throughout the whole thing and just trying to basically like come as close to getting caught as possible um, just because he sort of gets off on it. And um, I think the most interesting thing about this movie or, or, or rewatching this movie now is uh, Jimmy Stewart's character, who is this like, he, he was a um, an old professor of the two uh, killers who are like in their, I think, college age era. Um, and Jimmy Stewart's character, I guess, kind of like taught these guys everything they know about like the idea of uh, there is such a thing as the perfect crime. And that is for people who are superior to just murder anybody that they consider to be, or that society considers to be uh, inferior to them. And like murder in that way is like justified and like totally fine and right. And that's what Jimmy Stewart's character sort of like, uh, you know, proclaimed to these kids and they they like took him at his word and then when at spoilers for rope this movie from 1948 so i'm going to give you guys just a second to skip ahead uh, grab your uh, podcast players and skip ahead if you've not seen this movie which i would recommend you do um at the end of the movie when jimmy Stewart realizes that they've killed this guy and the they try to explain like hey this is just something that you you know, you, you should understand this. You of all people should understand this. He sort of has this moment of shock where he's like, my, I mean, I can't believe that you would take my words and just do what I say. And it reminded me so much of what's going on in American politics right now. And like, you know, we were talking about the storming the Capitol earlier and all of that, like just thinking about it through that lens, um, is it's really, uh, uh, kind of a, a, a weird thing to think about of, of Jimmy Stewart's character just being like, I mean, yeah, I said this stuff, but I didn't think that you were going to really do it. And like w- what the responsibility he bears in this situation is um, and how much these other people, you know, bear and, and how that, that uh, responsibility is shouldered and spread and, and um, the sort of insanity of the, the mindset of like, who gets to s- decide, you know, who is, who is superior to somebody else and, and, um, <laughs> like that, that it's okay to just murder someone because you think you're better than them. Um, man, what a, what a movie. So, uh, it's, I, I would recommend it now. It's, it's sort of a fascinating rewatch through that prism. I, I haven't um, seen this movie since like I was a kid. And when I was a kid, I was more fascinated with how it was shot than the story. But now having you hearing you talk about the story, it makes me want to revisit it. But I, I do remember hearing, because, you know, these cameras back in the day were like very heavy, like heavy cam. Like, you know, nowadays you can film a one take movie. I want to say easily, but a lot more easily. You have, you know, you're not dealing with film. You're dealing with video. The camera sizes are much smaller. And I remember reading that at one point in the movie, like because they have these long takes and no one wanted to be responsible for ruining a take because it costs a lot of money. The film costs a lot of money. The time costs a lot of money. And at one point, like one of the cameraman, like had his foot rolled over. It was on the dolly track and it, the can the dolly rolled over his foot, broke his foot and he had to gag himself. And then people dragged him off set. Wow. While they, so that they didn't ruin the shot. Jeez, man, so. that is intense. Yeah. Anyways, uh, sorry. Uh, what, what else have you been watching? 
Uh, the final thing that I watched, uh, I watched a film called Meet Me in St. Louis for the first time. I don't know. Um, HT, this seems like something you might have grown up with. Are you familiar with this movie? You know, I actually haven't seen it. I was considering to watch it this Christmas uh, because it is a Christmas movie. So you're kind of coming to it a little late. Uh, I know. Yeah, I didn't even realize that it was a Christmas movie. I had recorded it off of uh, Turner Classic Movies, I guess, around that time because Ben Mankiewicz did a, an intro to it and was like, you know, part of our Christmas uh, lineup this year is maybe in St. Louis. And I was like, oh, OK. All right, then. Yeah, it's where um, uh, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas originated. Yeah, that's what I wanted to talk about. So the, that's like I'm maybe the most notable thing about the song. I mean, the music is great. So Judy Garland plays uh, a member of this family, um, and the the plot is basically like her her she falls in love with the the boy next door, the this neighbor who just moved in, and the whole movie is basically about her sort of like maneuvering and trying to get him to notice her and and those two characters like getting together. And then it's like family drama um, that sort of plays out over the course of uh, multiple seasons. So the movie is sort of broken up into, you know, four different uh, like seasonal vignettes almost. And um, it, the, the movie is called meet me in St. Louis and St. Louis was the location of the world's fair in 1904. So that's when it's set um, the world's fair, is sort of the backdrop for the movie and, and the like final destination of the movie. And um yeah, Judy Garland is great in it, and and she, you know, I, I had not seen too much of her work, uh, aside from, like, the super, you know, big, classic kind of Wizard of Oz-level movies, um, but I need to go back and, and seek out a lot of her work as an actress, because, uh, I mean, her voice is just so incredible, and the, the standards and the songs that she sings in this movie are really, um, you know, moving and, and uh, like, energetic in some places. There's the, the trolley song, which I think at the time was, like, a more well-known uh, track then or, or became more well known instantly than have yourself a merry little Christmas. But uh, that is the song that, um, yeah, that originated in this movie and has now become just like so much a part of the fabric of, you know, the American celebration of Christmas that it feels like it's always existed. And like, it, it never, nobody ever came up with that song. It just, you know, sprang forth from the, from the ether, the Christmas ether or whatever. But um, just watching her sing that song, which is like really melancholy. And uh, it's the sad moment where she thinks that um, her family is going to have to move away. And she's trying to comfort her younger sister in this moment where she's just really, the younger sister is really torn up about um, like leaving everything that she's known in her entire life behind. And Judy Garland like reckoning with this idea of like having to to put this relationship on hold or or maybe not be able to pursue it at all and singing have yourself a merry little christmas uh with its original lyrics is just such a um a heart like rending uh, cut punch of a scene and it's it's so wild to think that like audiences at the time were just hearing that song for the first time it's just really i don't know kind of wild to think about and even something like um you know, like White Christmas, HT, I remember you talking about, you know, watching White Christmas for the first time around the Christmas season uh, this past year. And that's a movie that I grew up with. But the same kind of thing happened with that, where like Bing Crosby sang White Christmas. I think technically he sang it in a song in a movie called Holiday Inn, which came out like right before that. But um, that's another one of those songs that just feels like it's always been a part of the, you know, the pop cultural lexicon around Christmas. Um, but just just thinking about how crazy it must have been for people to like be bowled over by this song for the very first time. And then just it's slowly becoming, you know, like weaving its way into that fabric is just a, uh, yeah, kind of a, uh, something that, that I don't get to experience very often. Cause I'm not watching, um, super old stuff that has anything on, you know, on that level of like cultural, uh, 
permeation, I guess. So, um, yeah, I would recommend Meet Me in St. Louis. It's a, a fun movie. Um, it reminded me a lot of Little Women HD, and I think you would like it in that regard too. Not only in in the uh, sort of like vignette uh, aspect of it, but also just like the the dynamics between the sisters and the family and the the sort of like uh, yeah interpersonal um, relationship stuff there too. So uh, Vincent Minnelli directed this, came out in 1944, and it is called Meet Me in St. Louis. Very cool. And I think that brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at SlashFilm.com. And please head on over to our iTunes page, write us a five-star review, You know, write, write us like one line or two, tell us what you like. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow. Peter. Peter, I've opened up the gargantuan book of insult, offense, and affrontery, sharper torch for post cost eclipse, implant put down by Louis A. Safian. Are you ready? <sighs> the answer is yes. Okay, page 257, uh, the do nothings <laughs> section. Do nothings. Uh, Peter, talk about occupational hazards. He had a narrow escape. He was offered a job when he reported to pick up his unemployment check. Uh, I. Do I need to read it again, Peter? Uh, yeah, I, I really didn't. Under- okay. Yeah. Talk about no. occupational hazards. Peter had a narrow escape. He was offered a job when he reported to pick up his unemployment check. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, HT, she's known as the NYU woman, New York unemployed. Oh, that's me. I'm in New York. <laughs> and Ben, he's made a career out of collecting unemployment insurance. Ah, uh, that's not even only a, a do nothing would do. I was gonna say, like, that's not even a joke. I mean, I guess it is, but uh, Chris, he can fall asleep even while running for a bus. You sure can. I'm so tired. Peter, do I need to read yours again? Uh, I feel like no, the no, no. Okay, that's, that's that. I, I, I hope you all have a wonderful Wednesday. Talk about <laughs> occupational hazards. No, get a narrow escape. He was offered a job when he reported to pick up his unemployment check. <laughs>